Have you looked around lately? The brokenness, the division, the hate. After a while, it begins to take a toll. We begin to view people differently. Servanthood gives way to skepticism. Faith transforms into fear. Love begins to languish under the weight of uncertainty. It's easy to become who we were never meant to be. Cynical, angry, lost. In moments like this, we're reminded of the lasting meaning of Christmas. A savior given to bear the weight of our sin, to mend our brokenness, to make whole our divisions. The love of God on full display, bringing light to the darkness, giving hope to the hopeless. This Christmas, in the midst of these difficult times, may we all remember just how desperately we still need a Savior. There's a pastor author a number of years back by the name of A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite guys to read. Just had a, a pretty amazing way with words ahead of his time, in a lot of ways very thought-provoking. If you're looking for a good read over the holidays, Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer is top-notch. I, I challenge you to dive into that. But he, there's some quotes from some of his writings I want to start with today. And I want to warn you, they'll cut you. Okay, they're going to get you. Uh, don't say I didn't warn you. First one's this. Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. Told you. They'll get you. <laughs> How about a little bit longer one? Millions call themselves by his name, talking about Jesus. It's true. And they pay some token homage to him, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the test on the question of who or what is above, and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choices he makes day after day throughout his life. Another one. There are churches so completely out of the hands of God that if the Holy Spirit withdrew from them, they wouldn't find out for many months. And one more. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long, in vain. Now, most of Tozer's books, most of his quotes dropped in like the 1940s or 50s. You could read through these things. You could read his books and you would swear they're just from a few years ago talking about today because they're so appropriate for what we see in the world, what we see within the church, what we see among the body of Christ in many ways. Uh, and they're, they're very similar thoughts to what we see in the book of Malachi that we're going to, um, in the, the passages we're going to dive into today. And what we begin to see this week and then into next week are some issues that we can certainly relate to here in 2021. They're, they're common issues of any generation 
generation, especially among people who would have any claim to following Christ or having any desire for him at all. Uh, and this same issue comes to a head in Malachi as we get into some of those things today. And it's, it's an issue with only one legitimate resolution. And the issue is this. It's kind of a two-part issue. The issue is on one hand how easily humanity ignores the work and presence of God. And on the other hand, how quickly even his own people drift from him. Tozer speaks to some of that in his, in his writings. So we're in the uh, second week of a series called Christmas in Malachi. Kind of a strange place to go for the Christmas season, but basically what we hit last week is that in this book, as a bit of a prequel to Christmas, both in the time frame that it was written and in the content, we find out that in this book, God provides both a necessary rebuke of his people, the things that he's seeing in their lives within the nation of Israel, and at the same time, a powerful reminder of his plan to fix those issues, his plan to redeem them from those issues. And so that's kind of where we fit in, and, and it, it really just starts to paint a picture of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the midst of God's own people that creates the need for something like Christmas to happen, for Jesus to arrive on the scene. And as we go further today into chapter 1, the conversation continues. It's God, through his prophet Malachi, speaking to his people. And today he starts uh, to address those issues that he's seeing. God has some grievances with his people. And, always, and keeping in mind, what we hit last week is that God has, uh, he's kind of displayed himself in the contrast between how he interacts with people who have chosen to be in a relationship with him and those people who have chosen not to be in relationship with him. And so uh, God continues on here in Malachi 1 verse 6, and he says this, a son honors his father and a slave his master. So if I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It's you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? God says, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? This is, I don't know if it's ignorance or stupidity or just, just uh, playing with fire here. The Israelites are, are playing dumb. God says, well, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, plead with God to be gracious, because with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, this is a, as much as we have to look at the context and the content of what we're reading when it comes to some of these passages, also pay attention to the tone, because God is getting a bit exasperated as he's talking to his people, as he's communicating this message and not only seeing the issues, but starting to address it with them. God's getting a bit tired of this, and that'll come up here as we go through both this week and next week. Jump to verse 10. He says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. He's like, let's just lock up the churches because what you're offering me in that context isn't what I'm looking for. So just, I wish you would just close the doors. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, say, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured and lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? 
Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So God is seeing, God is receiving a major lack of honor, a major lack of respect from his people. He says, you've taken things that I've designed to be holy and you've made them worthless. And on the flip side, you've taken things that are worthless and have no value and you're trying to use those things to show me value. He says, would your boss accept that effort? Would your teacher be impressed with this? Would your mom and dad feel honored and valued and loved by these things that you are bringing to me as gifts? The answer is no. And so why me? And we can refer to Malachi 3.8 where God says, you're robbing me. And they're like, how are we robbing you? He says, because your offerings, what you do to thank me, what you do to worship me, what you do to acknowledge me, those offerings are pathetic. And the biggest issues are, number one, they show him no honor, but number two, they cost them nothing of real value. And so God says, after all that I've done, right? We talked about this last week where God says, in the contrast between those people that are in relationship with me and those out of relationship, how I bless their lives and how I interact with these people, it's very different. And I am glorified in that contrast. Out of all the ways that I've shown myself great throughout the generations, in the midst of that, you have been unfaithful to me. You have been unfaithful to me as a people, as a nation, as an entire scope of humanity. You've been unfaithful. But as we see in all of these passages, the people want to play dumb. How, how, how have we been unfaithful? How, how, we've tried this and we've tried that. How, how have we not pleased you in this way? So God chooses to get a little bit more specific in the ways that they've been unfaithful to him as a people. So we'll continue on into chapter 2. Malachi 2.1, God says, And now you priests, he's talking to the leaders now, those who are supposed to be the example. This warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you don't resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. Go to verse 7. He says, For the lips of a priest, they ought to preserve knowledge, because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you've turned away, and by your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. He was the original priest, the original teacher of the people. Verse 9, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but you've shown partiality in matters of the law. So the priests, the teachers, those who have been raised up, they, they've strayed from their calling to honor God and put him first and foremost and to lead the people by teaching, lead the people by example. Their calling was to honor God. Their calling was to preserve the knowledge of God. Their calling was to be a source of wisdom and biblical knowledge. Their calling was to be different, to be set apart, to be the leaders, to be the example to the people. And not only were they not that, they were the exact opposite of that. And so God says, how have you been unfaithful? How unfaithful have you become? Not only are you unfaithful as a people, but even your leaders have become unfaithful to me. Because it seems like even if all fall away. If, even if everyone else struggles to be faithful, even if everyone else is having a difficult time, certainly those at the top should remain faithful. But they were just as weak as the rest of the population, just as easily swayed, just as easily fooled, just as easily distracted, just as easily led away from the truth, which is what really matters and what they had been called to stand on and hold to. And it trickles down from there. 
So the, the entire group of people are having trouble being faithful. They have been unfaithful to God so badly that even their leaders are unfaithful. And it continues on into verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Then why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So God says, not only are you unfaithful to me, not only are your leaders unfaithful, but in the midst of that, the way that you're supposed to show your faithfulness to me, you failed in that too. You've been unfaithful to each other. We're told throughout Scripture, love God, be united in him, make that our top priority, be faithful to him, and out of that, love people. It's, it's the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us in the Gospels, and it's filtered throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Jesus' greatest commandment, and yet faithfulness to God is expressed in how committed we are to each other. And he says, you've been unfaithful to me, your leaders have been unfaithful to me, and you've been unfaithful to each other. He describes the severity of this, moving on into verse 13, by using the example of marriage. Verse 13, he says, another thing you do. Let me show you how you've been unfaithful to each other. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why. It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So divorce is highlighted here. Lest you think divorce is a modern day problem, it goes all the way back. And certainly divorce is the opposite of God's plan for marriage. He makes that very clear. This passage could be read, I hate divorce, says the Lord. So he makes his feelings clear on the topic. But this isn't just supposed to be some statement about marriage and divorce. This isn't, let me take a break from the unfaithfulness and tell people how I feel about this. This is being used for a very specific purpose because Israel was not only being loosey-goosey in their marriage relationships, they were giving up relationships that God had blessed, and they were turning to relationships with people that had no relationship with God, no knowledge of God, no desire to follow God, and it was destroying the unity and the relationships within their community, within their nation. And so divorce is the primary example used here, but in many ways it's simply being used to show a bigger problem. All of the relationships between God's people are supposed to be a beautiful picture of God's relationship with us. Commitment, sacrifice, servant leadership, grace through the best and worst times in our lives. This is how God interacts with his people. Those are the qualities of that relationship, and that's how God's people are supposed to interact together, marriage or otherwise. But God was seeing the exact opposite. He says, you've been unfaithful to me. Your leaders are unfaithful to me and you're unfaithful to each other. You're breaking promises when it's convenient. You're ending marriages when it's hard. You're refusing to submit mutually to one another. You're refusing to sacrifice and honor and love each other unconditionally. All of this happening, not out in the world where it's darkest, but within God's own people. You can read about this in Malachi. We see it in Tozer's quotes from 80 years ago. We can see it today in 2021. 
takes on a bit of a Revelation vibe. You read the first few chapters of Revelation. It doesn't get into the dragons and the serpents yet, but it talks about the churches of that time. And, and there is some encouragement. There is some good things going on. But he, he takes an opportunity to rebuke them the way that he's rebuking the people in Malachi, saying, this is, look how beautiful you used to be. Look at how I created you and what came out of this early church. And now look at what you're doing. Look at what you've turned to. You've forgotten your first love. And look at what you're doing. Look at what you're representing. This is not how it's supposed to be. And forget the Revelation vibe, it takes on a 2021 vibe. We look around at God's people, churches, church leaders, unfaithful to what God has called them to be, unfaithful to what we're supposed to represent in our relationship with him. You've been unfaithful to me, even your leaders have failed, you failed each other, and he has one more that's a little bit more subtle. As we look at Malachi 2.17, says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Right, and we're going to hit that a little bit more next week, but it's no wonder God goes silent for 400 years. He is over it at this point. How have we wearied him, you ask? Well, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Certainly calling good evil and calling evil good, this is something they saw in their time. It's something we see here in 2021, but... Beyond that, they're, they're starting to question God's character. Where's the God of justice? We see this in Habakkuk chapter 1, where Habakkuk is looking at the world, looking at the nation, and saying, God, all of these horrible things are happening. Why, why is this allowed to continue? If you care about this, if this is a big deal, if this is wrong, why aren't you stepping in? There's, there's doubting God's character, doubting that God is going to do it, but they don't see the plan. I don't know what you're going to do, so it seems like you don't really care. It seems like it's kill or be killed. It seems like we can go around the rules and it's going to be okay. It seems like evil prospers. And God's response, however subtle in this moment, is throughout Scripture to say, excuse me, I think I've made my character pretty obvious throughout the years. Look back at how I've interacted with my people. Look back at how I interact with the world. Clearly, I value the least of these. Clearly, I value justice for those who need it. Clearly, I've acted on behalf of those who can't act on their own behalf. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the slave, the foreigner living in a separate country. God says, I have ensured that there are protections and provisions in place to make sure that those who need it are given safety and provisions and rights. And it's almost like God looks back and says, where's the God of justice? What about you? What have you done? You've been unfaithful to me. You've been unfaithful as leaders. You've been unfaithful to each other. You've been unfaithful to the least of these. You've been unfaithful to those outside of the inner circle. You've been unfaithful to those who need to see me through you. In all levels, 360 degrees, they had been unfaithful to God. And over the course of the book, this is a common issue, an ongoing issue, where God's saying, nothing has changed in you. You're not in exile anymore. You're not at war anymore. You're not wandering in the desert. You're not even under the uh, oppression of some evil king. You're in the right location. I've given you the right leadership. I've given you the right people, but it's the same garbage as before. You don't love me. You don't honor me. You don't serve me. You're unfaithful to me. And Israel goes once again, what do you mean? How have we been unfaithful? We've changed. We're back from exile. We repented and you turned your face back to us and you brought us back. Certainly we've learned our lesson. Certainly we're different now. And God says, oh, what do I mean? Well, let me, you've been unfaithful to me. So here's what I mean. Show me your leaders. Okay, 
Here's what I mean. Show me your relationships with each other. Here's what I mean. Show me those who need the most from you and don't feel like they have it from you. Here's what I mean. And what we see in Malachi, long before Malachi, in the time of Malachi, in the time since Malachi, we see that it's been dark for a long time. And although there have been signs of light, promises of light, it's been dark for a long time because what they've seen is only evidence that a solution is coming, evidence that a light is coming, only signs, only a preview. These people need a solution. These people need a hero. And I think they're looking around going, who? okay, in the past, it's always been these great figures from our, our, our legacy, from our ancestors, but what they find out is Noah isn't walking through that door. Abraham and Isaac are not walking through that door. All of these individuals who God seemed to raise up at the right time, at the right place, to do what needed to be done, to set an example and lead the people back to God. Moses isn't walking through that door. Samson and Gideon, David and Solomon, they are not walking through that door. That's why they needed Christmas. That's how Malachi becomes this prequel to the Christmas season, even though it was 400 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, because God is saying, this is the problem. This is the issue. It's dark out there, and it's getting dark even within the body of Christ. You need a solution. And it's not coming in the form of a person. It's not coming in the form of a hero. It's coming in the form of Jesus. He's going to be born. And so we see this in Malachi 3, 1, uh, towards the second half of that verse, where God says, the one that you need, the solution you're looking for, everything that you desire will come. Because God says, you've proven you can't be faithful. You've proven you can't hold up your end of the bargain. You've proven that you can't possibly be holy as I am holy. So God says, so I'm going to show up and show you what it looks like to be faithful. I'm going to, be, to remain faithful enough for the both of us. I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain. I'm going to make a way for my holiness to be a covering for your brokenness. I'll be the hero. I'll send the hero that you need. So we asked the question last week, why Christmas? Malachi becomes the answer. That necessary rebuke is the reminder of how much they needed Jesus to show up. How much we need Jesus to show up at Christmas. And I think if we're honest, both thinking about the people in Malachi, thinking about our own lives, I think it becomes pretty clear that when it comes to being unfaithful, it's not a matter of if you've been unfaithful, but a matter of where you've been unfaithful. Where have you been unfaithful? You know it's a reality because you've tried to be your own hero before. Some of you are still trying to be your own hero, your own solution, your strength, your wisdom, your way. And as we established last week, that doesn't work. Those who try to do it their own way, by their own strength, by their own wisdom, God continues to allow them to live in the consequences of those decisions. But it's completely different for those who surrender themselves to what God wants and his way and his heroics. So you know it's a reality. So maybe for some of you, maybe you've been trying to honor God with your scraps. The scraps of your time. Scraps of your energy. Scraps of the talent and gifts that he's given you. Maybe you've been unfaithful by being distracted from what's really true and what's important, like Israel's leaders. 
Maybe your idea of things is more convenient and easier and less offensive than what's actually true, and you know it. Maybe you've been unfaithful to the truth. Maybe you've been unfaithful in your relationships. I'm not even talking about cheating on your spouse. I'm just talking about losing your servant heart. Have you lost what it means to have commitment, to live sacrificially, to be others-centered? Have you been unfaithful in your relationships? To get even more specific, maybe some of you are having trouble convincing your eyes that your wife is enough for them. Maybe some of you can't convince yourself that no man will ever completely fill the need in your heart. Have you been unfaithful in your relationships? Maybe you've been unfaithful to the least of these. Maybe you've convinced yourself that it's their fault. It's their issue to deal with, their battle to fight. Have you forgotten about the least of these? Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus in the first place. Maybe you've grown up hearing the Christmas story, hearing about Easter, hearing about Jesus. Maybe you've sat through church and you've had Sunday school and you've been to youth group and, and maybe you're here every single week, but you've never actually said yes to this thing that's been offered. Maybe you've been unfaithful to the gift that came on Christmas morning. Maybe you've never acknowledged that you truly believe in Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Where have you been unfaithful? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of where. Wherever your heart is currently, I want to challenge you. Lock back in on Jesus. It's you and Jesus. He's the only true and absolute solution to this issue. You need a hero, right? You're not looking for Moses. Maybe you're looking for dad to come walking through that door because he has strong faith. He set the tone. He's not walking through that door. Your prayer warrior grandma, she's not walking through that door. Sunday school teacher you had as a little kid, your youth group leader, your youth pastor, TV preacher you gave three minutes to as you're flipping through the channels, they're not walking through that door. They're not the hero you're looking for. All the accomplishments, all the, the acceptance and success you're going to be looking for at school tomorrow, that's not going to be enough. There's one solution, one hero. It's you and Jesus. That's what it comes down to. And the good news is we can find this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Even when we are faithless, even at our worst, when we lose everything that we're supposed to have, when we lose everything that we're supposed to be doing, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He knows you can't do it. He knows you need a hero, and he came to be that hero. That's why Christmas we are the people of Malachi. Striving, trying to do things on our own, trying to figure things out. Even those of us who follow Jesus have these moments where we're like, I don't think that's going to work. Let me do it my way. And he shows back up and is faithful again and again and again and again. It's a tough week because it's a lot of the necessary rebuke aspect of this book. And yet, don't lose the powerful reminder of the solution that he offers. And just to remind you about how God feels about you, in the midst of a rebuke, in the midst of some challenging stuff, in the midst of issues that he's seeing in our lives, one more Tozer quote to close things out, because I told you Tozer will cut you, but here's another one. Did you ever stop to think that God is going to be just as pleased to have you with him in heaven 
as you are to be there? God has to remind us of some things sometimes. He has to challenge us on some things sometimes. But in the end, it's all to draw you back to him, to latch on to his faithfulness and his gift instead of your own unfaithfulness. That's why Christmas is so powerful and so needed. Let's pray. God, thank you for these reminders. Thank you for your people Israel who went through so much for so many different reasons, but certainly among those reasons is to give us an example of what it looks like, the joy we can experience when we're walking in relationship with you, and at the same time, the heartache we can experience when we're walking away from you, outside of a relationship with you. But God, I want to thank you one more time. Thank you for sending Jesus on that Christmas in the midst of our mess, in the midst of the Malachi that we live every single day. Thank you for sending the solution that you promised for so long. God, I pray if there's anyone here who has never latched onto that gift, who has never stepped into that relationship with you, that maybe today, maybe this week, you would soften their heart, open their eyes for the first time to recognize and understand and accept and believe the gift that is Jesus and his death on the cross. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for purpose. Thank you for the peace that you offer us in these crazy times. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you next week.